everyone. Welcome to the Wrong Kind of Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Martin. And like I promised last week, we'll be talking today about why Jesus had to literally die for us to be saved. Before we get to that piece of the scriptures, though, we have to talk about the old covenant first so that we have something to compare the new covenant to. Let's start at the beginning of Hebrews chapter nine, verses one through five say, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So remember last week when we were in chapter eight, we talked about how the earthly tabernacle is a copy or a replica or a model of the original tabernacle in heaven. God told Moses that when he put up the tent, he needed to make sure to follow the example given to him on the mountain. This section here in chapter nine is just a more in-depth description of that tabernacle. The Hebrew Christians would have been familiar with this description already, but thankfully the writer put it in here anyway, so we all can have a better understanding of it today. The author is very specific in including these details, but he also says of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Of course, he could have gone to like great lengths, right? To discuss these objects, but Have you ever heard of the term author's intended purpose? If you're in the literary world at all, you know that this is a familiar phrase that just means that the author has a purpose for the words that they write. So when you're reading, you should look at that purpose and not beyond it. If we apply that concept here, looking at the author's intended purpose, we see that he is writing a comparison between the old and new covenants. And his goal here is to show the Hebrew Christians and us that the new covenant is better than the old. With that in mind, we can understand that he didn't want to take the time to digress on each individual item mentioned in the earthly tabernacle. That just wasn't his goal. His goal was to simply show that the new covenant provides for us better than the old did, even with all of these beautiful and meaningful items that he included. So he starts here with a description of the earthly tabernacle, which is a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. And then he brings up the earthly priests and the chief priests who were a copy of the heavenly great high priest, Jesus. Verses six and seven say, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes and he, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Every day, the priest would have to function as a priest, right? They had certain duties that they had to attend to, but only on one day of the year, the day of atonement, 
the chief priest would enter the Holy of Holies. And I'm not sure that any of us today can really understand like the real fear that went into entering the Lord's presence in the Holy of Holies in the earthly tabernacle. I've read before that they actually even would tie a rope around the waist of the chief priest before he would enter the second room, just in case he died while he was in there. So that way, if he did die, they could drag him back out because nobody else was allowed to enter that room. So unlike what we experience today, like we today are blessed to have this real fellowship with God, right? Like a real relationship with him. This day of entering his presence was not about fellowship or, and it wasn't about growing close to him. It was really only about atonement. We talked a little bit about this before, but the reason Jesus is able to be our ultimate great high priest is because he didn't have to offer any blood sacrifice for his sins, which is exact opposite of the earthly chief priests. The atonement blood was offered first for the sins of the chief priest and then for the unintentional sins of the people. The unintentional part is important because this specific day of atonement was used to cover any and all sins that were unknowingly committed throughout the year. If a sin was known, then it was covered under like regular sin sacrifices that were done throughout the year and kind of daily sacrifices. But this specific day of atonement sacrifice was for the sins of the priest, the chief priest, and anything that had been done throughout the year that they didn't realize they were sinning. This whole idea is just another way that Jesus's sacrifice is so very different. He died once to cover all of our sins. He didn't need to be sacrificed again and again to cover the various types of sin in our lives. Now here comes our segue. Remember the author's intended purpose? We're getting there now. If this old covenant was going to fail, why was it ever put into place to begin with? Verses 8 through 10 tell us, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. Isn't it interesting that the author even uses this term symbolic in verse nine? Actually, the Greek word here would lead closer to the being the word parables. And that's a word we're all familiar with, isn't it? The entirety of the old covenant is a parable to teach us about the new. We've talked before about how the old covenant was there to teach us how to live. But these verses explain why that wasn't enough for us who would fail the old covenant. That arrangement didn't change us from the inside out, unlike the new covenant would. The old covenant was there to teach us why we would need the new, why we would need to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, acknowledging him as our sacrifice and our great high priest. Verses 11 through 14 say, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
The author just gives us one more reminder that the work done in the earthly tabernacle isn't sufficient for eternal redemption. The blood of the animals may work for covering the sins of the flesh temporarily. They can never actually bring about change in us. The blood of Jesus can, though. Much like the blood of the animals that was shed outside the Holy of Holies, then taken inside by the chief priest, the blood of Jesus was sacrificed here on earth, outside the heavenly holiest of holies, but it was brought into the inner sanctuary in heaven itself. This explanation doesn't answer our big question for the day, though, does it? We may now know how Jesus's blood covered our sins, but we still don't know why he had to die in the first place. Surely, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings could have come up with some alternative plan that didn't require the sacrifice of his only begotten son. The author of Hebrews has a really good way of explaining it to us, though, and we'll see this in the next few verses. Verses 15 through 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Remember last week when we talked about that word mediator? It literally means to bring two people together. Jesus's main act of mediation then was essentially accomplished upon his death. His sacrifice of his own blood brought us together with God. It allowed for us to enter his presence once we have accepted Christ's sacrifice as the atoning blood for our sins. We still call him our mediator today, but that entire relationship is built upon looking back at this specific act of mediation. Okay, guys, here it is. This is it. Are you ready? Verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. There it is, guys, right there. Some versions use this word like testament instead of will, but it all stands the same, right? Even today, we still call it a last will and testament. Charles Spurgeon explained it this way. If there be a question about whether a man is alive or not, you cannot administer to his estate. But when you have certain evidence that the testator has died, then the will stands. So is it with the blessed gospel. If Jesus did not die, then the gospel is null and void. So remember, Jesus made this agreement for us. We talked about this last week. Since he made the agreement, or we can call it the will, if that helps us you know, understand it a little better. Since he made the will, he has to die in order for it to be in effect. Verse 18 says, therefore, I'm wiggling my eyebrows up and down right now, even though you guys can't see me because this is my word, right? Therefore. But the question is, why would this be a therefore moment when that's a word that kind of calls us to action? In this case, it's because the old covenant, though it is the old covenant, was a copy of the new covenant. So let's, let's just read it. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. 
Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hear that one again, guys. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the answer to our big question is kind of twofold. First, forgiveness can't happen unless there is a blood sacrifice given. The old covenant covered us temporarily with the blood of animals, but it could never really get into the heart of the matter to the heart of us, right? So Jesus made a will with us as the beneficiaries. He would come to this earth and live among sinners, knowing no sin himself, and he would be our perfect sacrificial lamb. His blood would cover us, not here in the earthly tabernacle, but in the heavenly holiest of holies, because upon his death, the beneficiaries would inherit. That's why Jesus had to die so that we could enter into heaven and more importantly, into God's presence. Let's finish out chapter nine, starting at verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of all the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now that's the end of chapter nine in our Bibles. But remember, We're the ones who went back and added in chapter and verse to all of this. So chapter 10 starts right up with verses one through four. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So it's saying that um, even though the sacrifices are offered every year, it can never make us perfect. Verse two. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I like that word at the beginning, shadow. I think that calling the earthly tabernacle a copy or a model of the heavenly tabernacle is is a good description. But here we're looking at the law itself, not necessarily the tabernacle, which God showed Moses how to build. But the law here is a shadow of the good to come. It's just an outline. It's not filled in. There's no vibrant colors. It's not a picture. And it certainly doesn't have the realities of the good to come. It's just a shadow. And I, I love, love this description. I can't take credit for it, but but check it out. Let's say you need a load of wood. So you go to the woodman and he takes you to a large oak tree in the far corner of the lot. Pointing at the long shadow it casts, he offers to sell you the shadow. Will you take it? 
Now, if God says that in the law, there was a shadow, not even the very image of the things, no picture of it. And of course, not the things themselves. Why then would you hold on to the shadow? Isn't that an excellent analogy? I just love that. Let's keep going. Verse five through seven. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is a quote from Psalm 40, and Jesus is reiterating that many times in the Old Testament, God let them know that he would much rather have had their obedience than their sacrifices. Verses 8 through 10 say, when he said above, and referring back to the Psalm 40 quote, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I can't help but notice like how many times the writer continuously tells us that Jesus's sacrifice was only necessary once. Thinking back to um, that author's intended purpose, remember these are Hebrew Christians who were tempted to go back to the traditions, the customs, the legalities of the old covenant. So we can understand why the writer keeps saying this over and over because he's trying to drill it under their heads, you know, don't go back. You don't need to keep sacrificing animals. It doesn't do any good now. But when I think of this once for all phrase in light of applying it to us today, I wonder if it's also a good reminder for us. We're going to mess up, you know, we're going to sin daily. But Jesus has already covered that for us. And don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you shouldn't try because remember, our obedience is always pleasing to God. But there are some people, and maybe you're even one of them, who get so caught up in their sin. They feel like they're unworthy and they can never do enough to be allowed into the presence of God. And I, I say this next part with, with all the love in the world, but you won't. Y- you are not worthy All of us are unworthy, and that's what makes Jesus' sacrifice so necessary. You will never be good enough, but you don't have to be. You just have to believe that Jesus is the son of the living God and that he came to die in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that you can enter into the presence of the Lord. Verses 11 through 18 say, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
Once God has forgiven our sins, he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. If he doesn't remember them, there is no longer a call to sacrifice. There's no need to sacrifice again. It's erased. We are washed clean by the blood. You don't need to pray for forgiveness over and over and over again, because when that forgiveness is complete, they're gone. Don't let Satan weigh you down with guilt. Don't let yourself weigh you down with guilt. If you have received that forgiveness, then you truly are free. And next week, we're going to look at how we should be living in light of that freedom. I'm so excited for that. I also wanted to let you guys know that um, instead of airing an episode with a guest this Thursday, this week, um, that will be coming out Friday morning. Nicole Weaver is going to be joining me in the studio to talk about what scripture says about money and some tips on getting out of debt using those principles. I think you're going to want to tune in for that one. I know that I'm planning on taking all the notes that day. I'll talk to you then. Bye.